uh, Hosea chapter 3. Let me, let me open us up in a word of prayer. And um, I just want to I, I I close our time out pretty much saying, uh, if you don't have this, none of what we just said works. All right? And then I just want to talk to you about what the this is, bring up a, a few points, and then we can call it a night. Let, let me pray for us. God, you have deposited so much into us already this evening, Lord God, and it was just, it, it was good. Uh, I feel like Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration when he's saying, it's, it's just good to be here. And um, Lord, all the wisdom that I've, I've received just sitting even on this panel has been a good thing. Now, Lord God, once again, would you uh, stand in my body, think with my mind, speak with my tongue, those things you'd have us know, say, and do. I'm available to you, Lord Jesus, I pray. Amen. It was D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, that great mid-20th century London preacher who, um, who actually said Matthew chapter 7 is the scariest chapter in the New Testament. There's a lot of truth to that. It's Jesus reaching kind of the crescendo of his Sermon on the Mount. And he says some frightening stuff. For example, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. How many will say to him on that day, didn't we cast out demons in your name? And didn't we prophesy in your name? And didn't we do many mighty works in your name? And Jesus is going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. The reality of hell is that hell will have many parking spaces reserved for religious people. People who went to church, people who served in ministry, people who did a lot of, people who gave faithfully, but none of that stuff gets you into the kingdom. In fact, Jesus says, if you want to know that you're saved or not, Matthew 7, right around verse 21, verse 22, he says, you will recognize them by their fruit. What is fruit? Fruit is a changed and changing lifestyle that cannot be kind of blamed on the normal maturation process of adulthood. But fruit is a changed and changing lifestyle, spiritually speaking, that can only be blamed on the yielded life to the power and presence and activity of the Spirit of God pulsating through them. In other words... Every Christian should be able to look through the rearview mirror of their journey with Jesus and make two conclusions. One, I am not all the way where I should be. But two, I'm not all the way where I once was. God is changing me. I don't mind saying this. Um, Michelle and I's um, pastor, Bishop, Bishop Kenneth Ulmer, he shared it one Sunday in front of about 13,000 people. He said, you know, when I first got saved, I used to cuss at the drop of a hat. But now since following Jesus, I don't cuss that fast anymore. <laughs> now, we're not condoning cursing, but, but what he's saying is, is actually theologically accurate. He's saying, listen, this thing called the flesh is very real, and you cut me off on the freeway, and, and I haven't been praying and walking in the power of the Spirit of God. I might want to pull up next to you and talk to you in sign language. <laughs> But at the same time, when he talks about not doing as fast as he used to, he's, he's just leaning into the reality that God's changing him. 
We used to sing a song in my old chocolate church there on the south side of Atlanta, written by the king of gospel music, James Cleveland. The song simply says, please be patient with me. God is not through with me yet. How do I know that I'm saved? Jesus says you will recognize them by their fruit. What exactly is that fruit? Galatians chapter 5 says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The leadoff batter to the list is love. Now abideth faith, hope, and love, Paul says to the Corinthians. But the greatest of these is love. One commentator says that love is the MVP of all New Testament virtues. Jesus, in a little upper, uh, upper room overlooking the Kidron Valley, not long before he would be crucified, says, by this all men will know that you're my disciples, not by the amount of books that you've read, not by the arguments you have on social media, but by the love you have for one another. An unloving Christian is an oxymoron. It is a contradiction in terms. None of this works, what we've been talking about. Michelle pointed to it and so many others, unless we're known as people of love. Robert Smith Jr., that great preaching uh, professor at the Beeson Divinity School uh, there in Alabama, he, he says, every New Testament point has an Old Testament picture. Every New Testament point has an Old Testament picture. I want to draw you into what I believe to be the seminal Old Testament picture of love. And I want to show you how this intersects with what we've been talking about as far as issues of race and ethnic unity. I want you to meet me in Hosea chapter 3. It is the seminal Old Testament picture of love. And I think the principles embedded in this passage are going to serve us well as we just talk about what does it look like to do life with people who don't look like me, act like me, think like me, or vote like me. What does that look like? I want to read the whole chapter of Hosea 3. Calm down. It's just like five verses or so. But look at what it says. Hosea writes in Hosea 3, And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man, and, and is, not used to be, is, not was, is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisin. Verse 2, pay attention to the details. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I, I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterwards, verse 5, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Just three quick principles I think that are going to serve us well. We just talk about how do we flesh this, this love thing out? How do we, in the words of the, the great theological group, the OJs, get, get on this love train together? What does that look like? Not too many people got that. Okay, you got it, Michelle. What does that look like? to really love, especially in the context of ethnic unity. 
When we come to the book of Hosea, God is, he's perplexed, he's disturbed, he's frustrated. God calls Hosea in for a closed door meeting. He's looking over the balcony of heaven and God does not like what he sees. God says in so many words to Hosea, I have, I have entered into covenant, hased with my people Israel. And my problem, God says in so many words, is that I have married a serial adulterer. My bride Israel keeps on cheating on me. And I haven't entered into contract with Israel. I've entered into covenant. You do understand the difference, right? Contracts are performance-oriented. Contracts are, are, are you do your part, the other party will do their part. We'll, we'll kind of meet each other halfway, and if we like your performance, we'll, we'll up the deal for the next term. Contracts are performance-oriented. When you and I got saved, we didn't enter into contract with God. We couldn't keep our end of the bargain in our own strength. We stepped into covenant. So God's dilemma in the book of Hosea, it's not ultimately that his people are cheating on him and giving him the right to divorce them. It's that in his sovereign love and holiness, he can't divorce them. So God says to Hosea in so many words, I need to communicate to my people that I have more mercy than they have mess. I need to communicate to them that there is no statute of limitations on my love. I need to, to show them that there is no expiration date on my grace. So Hosea says, okay, God, what do you have in mind? Now, you may preach a sermon on it? Uh, not yet. You may write a book about it? That'll come later. Okay, God, what are you thinking? And God says to Hosea, here's what I want to do. I want to use you as my divine show and tell to communicate my, my astounding love, my inexhaustible love to a people who are trying to fatigue me. So here's what I want to do, Hosea. I know you just graduated from seminary. Got the MDiv. Just got called to pastor your own church. I know you're single. I'm going to fix that. I got a bride picked out for you. Can't you see Hosea smiling? Okay, God, tell me, um, what's her name? Her name is Gomer. Now, at this point, I ain't smiling anymore because I ain't never met a cute Gomer in my life. Um, sorry if your mama named you that. But um, Well, God, what does she do? Chapter one, she's a prostitute. The smile is completely gone. If I'm Hosea, I'm saying, wait a minute, God. And can't you just see it now at the installation service? The prophet with the prostitute? The man of God with the woman of the night? No, 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 God. That's too strange. And God says, that's exactly my point. Because if you think that's strange, I can do you one stranger. The fact that I, a holy God, have hitched my wagon in relationship to you is an even stranger sight. What does it mean to love? 
What makes love really pop? It's the contrast. It's the strangeness. It's looking at people who transgress tribal lines. It's looking at individuals who you would never put together. And yet they're walking with one another. There's strangeness there. I, I, you know, you'll forgive me. You Portlanders are so far ahead of me. But I, I grew up in Atlanta and um, back in the, in the 80s. And Atlanta was just, call it what it is, very homophobic town back then. I get to the Bay Area several years ago, and, and, and my youngest son is a, he's a pretty good basketball player. In fact, later on this week, he'll fly out to St. George's, Utah, of all places. He's been invited to a camp with the best ninth and 10th grade basketball players in the country, and he'll go out there and play. But when we got to the Bay, he got picked up by this AAU team, and we're living in San Jose, first tournaments in San Francisco, and my son's the, the two guard, and we're sitting there, and sitting down next to the point guard's two moms. And this is new to me. So my wife and I strike up a conversation with them. And we're enjoying the whole tournament with them. And we get to know them. At the end of the tournament, we exchange numbers. And my wife, Corey, and I get in the car and, and head down south on the 280. And as we're driving back home from the tournament, my wife and I say to each other in so many words, what if God's calling us not to change them, because you can't change anybody. You can't even change yourself. What if God's calling us to love them? So we invite this couple over. It's the start of fall season. We invite them over. Um, this married gay couple, and they come over, and, um, you know, we're enjoying a good dinner together. And um, the whole time I'm saying, please don't ask me what I do for a living. And... <laughs> We're enjoying good food, good time. And it's a little strange for me. That dinner turns into some more dinners, and we just begin to kind of get to know each other pretty well. And sure enough, a couple dinners label, they go, hey, later, they go, hey, Brian, you've, you found out what we do for a living, and we've told you kind of about uh, our religious affiliation. They're atheists, and, but we never asked you, what, what do you do, do for a living? I'm like, okay, here we go. I'm a pastor. I tell people how to find true meaning, value, and significance in life through God's only son, Jesus. Talk about a record-scratching moment. One of them gets up from the table right away and, you know, whispers something under her breath to the effect of didn't see that one coming and she's going to leave my house in a huff. And I'm thinking, wow, you call us judgmental. All I said was this is what I do for a living. And I crack a joke. She comes back to the table. We, we, finish, we finish the night off. And a couple months later, it's now spring, um, spring season. And, and they call me up. They said, hey, Brian, our, our son... Uh, our son Josh is 13 years old, and he's getting to a point now where it's obvious he needs a man's voice in his life. And you know we've been leasing a home out in Sunnyvale, and, and, but we've decided to lease a home right around the corner from you because we think you need to be that male voice speaking into our son's life. No pressure. In fact, Brian, we're doing a big housewarming. Can you come over and bless our house? I'm like, bless as in pray? Pray to God? 
They're atheists. They go, yeah, yeah, come on over, just do what you do. <laughs> so we came over, rushed over after church, Sunday afternoon, I'll never forget it, and from the looks of things, we were the only heterosexual people in the house, and strange. God bless my youngest son, he can't whisper to save his life. <laughs> We're in the middle of this, uh, of the house blessing. He goes, are you uncomfortable? <laughs> shut up, shut up, shut up. And so I bless the house and we have a great time. And someone's taking pictures of us the whole time. And I get to the office the next day and um, my wife sends me a text. Uh, Sweetheart, they've tagged us on Facebook. Okay. And then a few moments later, one of the dear sweet mothers of our church calls. Her words, not mine. Pastor, I was on Facebook. Which when an 80-something-year-old tells you that. Her words, not mine, and they were horrible. Is my pastor partying with gay people now? She said, because the Jesus I know wouldn't party with gay people. Now, there's a verse in the Bible I do not like. If I can cut this verse out, if you gave me one verse to cut out, it would be this one. Verse says, do not rebuke an older person. I don't like that verse because there's a lot of older people who need to be rebuked. So in a real gentle way, I said to her, you might want to read up on Jesus again. Because the Jesus I know hung out in some different environments. We're talking about the multi-ethnic church, and the, the question was asked, how, how does that happen? If people are still coming to church primarily out of relationships, then sanctuaries reflect dinner tables. If you want a strange sanctuary, it begins with you having a strange table. How strange is your table? How different is your table? We're all strange. But what relationships do you have that causes people to do a double take? What do your relationships look like? We don't know when it happened, but it happened. By the time we come to Hosea chapter 3, they had gotten married, but by the time we come to chapter 3, they're separated. And we can piece together by circumstantial evidence that, that Gomer is at fault. Let me look again at Hosea chapter 3, and the Lord said to me, go again, go again, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. So we know they're separated because God has to tell Hosea to go again, to go back to her. And the reason why he has to do that is because she's an adulteress, meaning she cheated on him. Now, if I'm Hosea, I'm going, oh, 
don't want to be with her in the first place. This was your idea, God. She cheated on me. She violated it. I am done. In fact, God, let me remind you what the law says in the book of Leviticus, in the book of Deuteronomy. If a woman is found to be unfaithful, I have the right to divorce her. So let me just remind you, that's what the law says. And God says in so many words, I know what the law says. I wrote it, but love always flies at a higher altitude. So remember, this relationship is not about your relationship. It is a window into my relationship with my people. And if every time you messed up and cheated on me, I wiped my hands clean of you. You wouldn't have made it out the first day. So I need you to do to her what I do to you every single day. And that's go again and go again and go again and go again. First Peter 4 talks about, I want you to love one another earnestly. The Greek word for earnestly, it was used of horses in, in, in antiquity who had run as fast as they could and were out of breath. It means to love to the point of exhaustion. Anybody can show up for a march. Anybody can protest. But to keep coming back to the table when they've said the insensitive thing, to refuse to take your relational ball and go home because you were offended. Our love stamina is so low. Who in your life is God saying, go again? Go again. Go again, of course. Of course I want to be careful with this. This is not green lighting a person just being a doormat and living in an abusive relationship. We get that. We, we understand that. We, we understand that there's a point to put boundaries down. My concern is we, we, we put boundaries up way too quick. So I love it. Verse two, Hosea says, so I bought her, here are the details, for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. I'll get right to the point. What's happening to Gomer is in modern parlance, unfortunately, she's being sex trafficked. The going rate to, to emancipate a woman who was being sex trafficked in Hosea's time was 30 shekels of silver. So why doesn't the text say that I bought her for 30 shekels of silver? Why does it say that I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley? Because scholars are agreed he didn't have the 30 shekels. I can just see him now frantically looking between the cushions of his sofa and under the bed and, 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 and scraping the little bit he had and 15 shekels and taking it to the auctioneer going, that's my wife. I need to emancipate her. I need to set her free. God sent me here. This is all I got, 15 shekels. And, and, and the auctioneer going, not enough. And, and, and they're, they're bartering back and forth. Well, well, what if I added a homer and, and a lethic of party? Okay, I'll take it. And so to emancipate the one who cheated on him cost him everything he had. 
If it ain't strange, it ain't love. And if you ain't paying a cost, it ain't love. Racial reconciliation is cute, but it's costly. And isn't that our problem? Our problem is we want Nordstrom quality community at thrift store prices. That's our problem. We don't like being inconvenienced. You know, Paul says in uh, Galatians 6, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens. What is the law of Christ? Loving my neighbor as myself. Who's my neighbor? Luke chapter 10 is everyone you see. And by the way, Jesus says, let me tell you what it looks like to love your neighbor. He tells the story of the good, good Samaritan, someone who is the ethnically other, a Jew and Gentile in one body. He's beaten. Religious leaders pass him by. Don't want to be convenient, inconvenienced. But who helps him? The good Samaritan. Inconvenienced with his time. Inconvenienced physically. He puts him on his animal while he walks him inconvenience with his money, takes him to the end. Whatever he needs, put it on my bill. Inconvenience, incon- Jesus says, that's what it means to love your neighbor. It's costly. It's absolutely, positively costly. I, I, hope, I hope this is a safe environment, but Sometimes my white brothers and sisters just drive me nuts. Like I'm trying to grieve George Floyd and I'm getting hit up on text messages and DMs asking me to assign you homework. Like what books do you want me to read? But no problem. You're my brothers, you're my sisters. Read this and read that and read this and yes, let's hang out and Okay, you said something insensitive. Let's talk about it. There's a, there's a cost. Now, here's what fatigues race relations in America. What fatigues us is when one group is paying such a, a higher cost than another. What cost are you paying? I love it. If I were to stop here on love, I would make love to be this spineless thing. Strange, it's costly, I'm a doormat. I'd actually make it be um, uh, kind of the ethic of tolerance. And as I told you this morning, tolerance is such a low ethic. I tolerate you, tolerate you. But notice what happens. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley, verse three, and I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so will I also be to you. Here's the deal. And, and, and this doesn't play well in cities like Portland or in America in general. Love has a standard. He says, Gomer, you're emancipated, you're set free. But if we have any shot at a relationship, we've got to agree to a common standard.
So in our gay friends who we've been doing life with, and they come to me and they say, hey, we're celebrating five years being together. We'd love for you to do our, our, our renewal of the vow ceremony. And oh man, I'm just crushed because I've been building this thing up. I've been loving him really well and, and I'm hemming and hawing and I'm saying, listen, I can't. I love you. But there's a standard as it relates to what I believe the scriptures teach. <laughs> and I remember just kind of fumbling over the words, trying to get it out. I'll never forget what they said. Oh, you're, stop being dramatic, they said. We, we figured you couldn't. <laughs> and that was the end of that. And we've had other conversations. You know, one of them was running for state... Uh, uh, state senate. She wanted to put a sign in my yard. I said, okay, well, what do you believe? Well, I, I'm, she says, I'm really big on women's reproductive health. Really? Now, she's a black woman. I said, let me leave Jesus out of it. Have you heard of Margaret Sanger? We have robust conversations, and we keep coming back to a standard and keep coming back to a standard, but the relationship is still there because we've made love deposits along the way. That's why I love what John said of Jesus. When I saw Jesus, I saw a man full of grace and truth. I love the order of that because oftentimes people won't hear truth until they first feel grace. I love the order of this. Had he given her the standard before he emancipated her, he would have made her emancipation conditioned on her kind of obedience. But he sets her free and then gives her the standard so that her, her sense of obedience wouldn't be in the category of obligation, but in the category of, of desire and delight. I want to do this for the person who set me free. And herein is the problem. The problem is I've been preaching this whole thing wrong to you. This text isn't ultimately about how I walk with people. It's a good secondary application. This text is ultimately about how God walks with us. This text is all about God's relationship with us. Don't you understand? We're all Gomer. And if you don't ever see yourself at Gomer as Gomer, you will never reach out and love people this way. But when you first understand, I'm the messed up person. I'm the one who's blown it. And in an insane act of love, a holy God has hitched his train to mine. That's strange. And on the cross, Jesus Christ paid his 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley to emancipate me and to set me free. Now he calls me to a standard. That's why Dallas Willard would say, Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
I'm diamond status with Delta, which means I fly way too much. <laughs> diamond status is pretty nice. It's got its perks. What it, one of the perks is if there's an empty seat in first class, I, I've got a good chance of getting it. Now, this is wonderful, except for when I'm traveling with my wife who has no status. <laughs> I've had to learn the hard way. It's not conducive to a healthy marriage for... Me to be chilling in first class, eating Biscoff cookies while she's back in coach. <laughs> so I've learned that when I travel with my bride, because of my status, I'll still get the first class ticket, but I'll sit down next to her in coach, which means I'm sitting in someone else's seat. Now, this person in whose seat I'm sitting in will start bar barking at me. You're sitting in my seat. You're sitting in my... And I'll shut them up real quick by giving them my first class ticket. Now, I haven't lost my status. I'm still diamond. I just refuse to use my status for my own selfish ends. Jesus Christ was sitting in the first class section of the universe called heaven. Saw we sinners languishing down here in coach, headed for a one-way street called hell. He took on flesh and dwelt among us walked with us, got on a cross, died for us, was buried in a borrowed tomb and resurrected the third day so that we can get the upgrade back to heaven. And to be a Christian means in some way, shape, or form, we incarnate that. We inconvenience ourselves for the convenience of others. By this will all men know that you're my disciples by the love that you have for one another. Let's pray. So God, I, I do hope that they look at us and say, oh, how they love. Above all the techniques, above all the books that we read, the learning that we accrue, God, that we would be known by our love. May we be willing to lay down our lives and count the costs. May we be willing to walk with people, Lord Jesus, and keep coming back to the table. To love one another earnestly, as Peter says. To love to the point of exhaustion. Because that's what it looks like to love our neighbors as ourselves. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.